being away on detachments in other countries in sun and snow and even onboard aircraft carriers. Working long days on sun lounges in the South Pacific or freezing the brass monkeys off in Siberia. These stories, they captivated me, leading me to want to experience them myself. I was only chatting about this with Jen last week, of, and I remember wanting to have stories of my own. To have a raptured audience hanging onto every word. Now, you might not be raptured, but you're still listening, so I'll just take it. When I was younger, I didn't have many interesting or engaging stories to share because I hadn't experienced them. It's only as time has passed that I've realised that I have now plenty of stories of my own. Experiences have stacked up over the years and I now have a growing collection I keep for special occasions or when I'm procrastinating. Some stories are well-worn and used regularly. Others are kept in the shadows and only shared with my closest friends. When I talk and when I write, like I did when I was preparing this message, I only put the stuff in that I want you to hear. We call this author bias. You won't get an, an unbiased account from me because I'm telling the story. So I've chosen what I want to tell you. It's not biased because I want to hide something, just some bits aren't as important or they distract from the point that I'm trying to make. And as you've come to church and not an air show, I'll assume you don't want to hear me talk about planes, so I'll keep the planes out of it. Correct? Oh. There are a multitude of other things I could have put in here. A lot wouldn't be relevant. Quite a few would be fairly off topic, mostly stuff to do with planes, or the times I've made a fool of myself or been lost. Some topics might even be considered unpublishable, the kind of stuff that gets the elders jumping out of the seats and apologising for letting this madman loose at the front. So what should I write about? What I imagine you want to hear about, the stuff that you want to learn about and store up in your hearts, is Jesus. About Jesus' ability to understand people and situations and to turn them around for his glory how he loves people and only wants the very best for them. That he would do anything for them at any cost. So I'm going to share with you two stories. These two stories intertwine in a way that is both unusual and incredible. They're not my stories. There's a better author who has done a much better job than I could. And even though it's not my tales, both the author and I have the same intent. Our intent is that you take away something relevant and encouraging. <clears throat> a glimpse of Jesus that wonderfully and permanently changes the lives of everyone involved. I'm going to read from the book of Mark, as has been our study topic over these past few weeks. And as with all authors, Mark has an intent when he wrote this. The purpose behind the writing, the intent, is to persuade and encourage these early Christians. To fully understand his intent, we must look at the audience and the culture. And to keep it short, his audience are the Gentile Christians residing in and around Rome. And we think this is around the late AD 50s to mid 60s. He is proclaiming the God nature of Jesus. He is declaring Jesus is the Messiah, the long expected King of the Jews. That Jesus' death and his resurrection paid off the debt that we held from our sin, and he has won the victory over Satan, sin, 
and death combined. Mark will, of course, have intentionally and subconsciously added his own bias and direction to the text. This isn't to say that the scriptures aren't divinely inspired, because we know that they are. Rather, God is inspiring a guy to record these events in history for us. And the reason Mark did such a wonderful job is because he is God-inspired. When we find in these passages, what we find in these passages, therefore, is the character of both Mark and God coming through the words that we read. Unlike Song of Songs and Revelation, which are prophetic or imagery-laced books, when we read these passages, we should read them as an account. Like evidence in a courtroom or a celebrity completing an autobiography, it's a first-hand testimonial, a narrative, a witness statement, or a diary entry. Mark does an admirable job of recording some of the greatest moments of Jesus' life. These are the part, there are parts of the story that are missing because he has chosen instead to use the bits that, for him, clearly show and underline his intent. When we cast our eyes over these pages and store the words up in our hearts, we should see them as golden moments that someone has treasured and is eager to share with us. The content is so great because people's lives are transformed. Not only did those people get to benefit, but we do too. We also get to be encouraged by them, and this strengthens our foundations and builds our faith. That's the double whammy of a testimony. More than one person gets to share the goodness of God. When we face difficulties, we can have our faith boosted by these accounts. These accounts of Jesus, our healer, our hope, and our saviour. In a controversial move, I've only got two points for you this morning. It's down to budget cuts, I'm sorry. But if you like headings, here they are. Firstly, Jesus brings healing. And secondly, Jesus inspires faith. Let's turn then to Mark 5. I'll be reading from verse 21 to the end of the chapter. As we read this short section together, we'll see two lives interwoven by a single moment in history. <clears throat> we'll read of two healings that blew the minds of those that witnessed them. Interestingly, we see the same narrative by three separate authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And from this, we can really give credence. We can really give weight to authenticity because multiple authors have recorded the same event with similar content. Let's read these verses and see what Mark has to say. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her, heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had got worse. She had heard about Jesus, and she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. 
Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around the crowd and asked, who touched my robes? His disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. And he went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, she's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him. But he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened, and he told them to give her something to eat. On to my first point. Jesus brings healing. We read a lot of accounts in scripture about healings. They're incredibly common, particularly as we read through the Gospels. I hadn't noticed before, but there were a few unusual things that happen in this particular story. And I'll point them out as we go through. We begin with Jairus, the leader of the local synagogue. We can read this and not give it much thought, but to the townspeople in that culture, it would have meant a lot. Jewish communities are close-knit. Judaism is big on family structure. This common thread that meant everything that they did, they did as a larger family. The local leader, sorry, the leader of the local synagogue wasn't just there to lead the religious services. He would have formed the lead of the community in that town. As such, he would have a position to consider. Just as politicians and celebrity figures keep their bag of crazy under wraps and keep it out of the public eye, so did Jairus. His personal opinions and beliefs were veiled behind his professional and religious front. John tells us that many rulers of the synagogues believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but none would openly confess it. The Pharisees, the enforcers of the religious laws, would have had something to say about that. But then Jairus' daughter gets sick. Like most parents, what I think I do in an emergency and what I actually do are often quite different. I like to think I'm cool under pressure. Some of you are grinning because either you know me or you know where the story's going. I'm actually a frantic analyzer and will readily jump to the extreme end of a response to make sure I've covered my bases. After Christmas, Lila had a cough. Actually, before Christmas, Lila had a cough. She's had a cough for longer than I care to remember. And it's not the same cough. She just picks up a new one each week from the germ factory that is nursery. She coughed all night, for night after night after night. 
apart from being the most irritating thing in the world, worry does start to creep into your mind. Maybe this is something more serious than we thought. The doctor said it was just a virus. Maybe they were wrong. During the night, we would go in and check on her. We would untangle her from the knot of duvet. We would drag her, drag her up the bed into a pillow again, douse the pillow in old bath oil, and finally, with her settled, we'd head back to bed. And just as we're dozing off, the coughing begins again. With one such coughing session, I once again found myself skipping merrily back to her bedside to check on her for the 30th time that night. Once I'd found her in the duvet and untangled her, I found a patch of fresh red blood on her muzzy. My heart stops. She's coughing blood. That's not good. That's never good. In that sleep-deprived moment, my brain runs riot. I call out to Jen, and she trudges in with a blanket round her shoulders. We both stand there in the gloom, shoulder to shoulder, zombies united. We discuss our options. Do we wake her, or do we leave her? Do we ignore it, or do we get help? We decide we need to talk to someone about it. My phone is already in my hand, and I'm dialing 999 for advice. This isn't the time to wait for trouble one. I'm just about to press the call button, and Jen beckons me. My now alert eyes leave my phone's screen and go to check what she's found. Lila's bitten her lip. No tuberculosis, lung cancer, or pulmonary embolism, just a cut lip. We crawl back into bed for another five minutes of sleep before the coughing starts all over again. But I'm at peace. And all, well, nearly all, is well again. The problem with Jairus' daughter is that she isn't well. She was ill, and the son had become a lot worse. A decision has to be made, no ambulance to call or helpline to ring. But Jairus has heard of Jesus. He's heard about the healings. There's a glimmer of hope. It will cost him greatly, but if it works, it'll be worth it all. Jesus happens to be in his very town, so he hurries, knowing what he must do. Approaching Jesus, he must do something he'd rather not. He falls at Jesus' feet. The synagogue leader, the community lead, falls at another man's feet. A man lower than himself. A shameful act for someone of his position. But so what if the Pharisees chastise or demote him? His daughter is worth so much more than any, than any position. Jairus asks Jesus to come home and heal her. In fact, he pleads and pleads with him. Jesus agrees and begins to go, but we encounter the first unusual thing that happens right here. Another story begins before the first is brought to completion. A woman has made her way through the crowd and touches Jesus' cloak. Jesus, sensing the power being drawn out from him, stops and starts to question the crowd. Now, Jairus, being a religious leader, I would like to think would have an element of patience. But surely this isn't a time for a game of Cluedo. I would like to think that even the most patient saint would start to fizzle with frustration. He was so close to having the actual Jesus come back and heal his sick daughter but it's being thwarted by that dirty woman that hangs around in the shadows. The whole story changes direction 
as Jesus' attention is diverted to the woman. Rejiris hopping from foot to foot in the background, also our attention is drawn to her. The thing about the story of Jairus' daughter is that Jairus already thought he had faith. He knew that if Jesus came, his daughter would be made well again. But this woman took up so much of Jesus' time, it was too late. The messengers came from his home to bring the news that he'd been fearing all along. His daughter was dead. It was too late. Dead people tend to stay dead. That's just how the world works. You have to remember his position here. Jesus hasn't raised anyone from the dead so far, so this is new ground. Jairus is resigned to the fact that this is the end. Jesus does what Jesus does best. And he contradicts Jairus' thoughts and expectations. Don't be afraid. Just have faith. We don't get told how Jairus reacts, but I imagine his mind was racing. Just have faith. But she's dead. But, we were told, Jesus' words are an encouragement to him. Encouraged, and I imagine confused in the same moment, Jairus leads them all to the house, and, as expected, a commotion is afoot. Jesus keeps the crowds back and enters the room with Jairus, his wife, and the three disciples, James, Peter, and John. Holding the girl's hand, he tells her to get up, and she does. Much, I imagine, to the astoundment of all in the room, except Jesus, because nothing takes him by surprise, he instructs them to keep the whole thing secret and ensures the girl gets something to eat. Because face it, who doesn't fancy a snack after they've been dead for a bit? Throughout the Gospels, we see little links to things coming up in the future. And this could well be an introduction to something Jesus does in Luke 24. After the resurrection, Jesus asks the disciples for something to eat, as a way of proof that he's actually real and not just a ghost or a vision. I like how Jesus acts in this situation. There isn't any hype or convoluted prayers. It's simple and straightforward. Calm and collected. It isn't done in front of a large crowd to seek attention. It's done discreetly and sensitively. Both the spiritual and practical elements are catered for. The girl is raised from the dead. She's healed and has her appetite satisfied. We see a common instruction coming from Jesus here. Keep the whole affair quiet. Keep it a secret. That's ridiculous. How are you supposed to keep the raising of a dead person a secret? Perhaps... The warning is for the parents not to exploit the girl or to show her off as a child extraordinaire. But what we do see is Jesus brought life. Jesus brought life to that young girl. He rescued her from her sickness and death. Jesus brought life to the parents who had just lost everything. Jesus brought life to Jairus' faith. My second heading is Jesus inspires faith. I'm a a little sad that we don't find out this woman's name. It feels quite impersonal just writing the woman did this, then the woman did that. But regardless of how it makes me feel, she has an incredible story to tell. She was afflicted with endless bleeding. I cannot fathom, or can't even begin to fathom her pain. For 12 years, she's bled. 
In Levitical law, Jews would be considered, would consider the normal monthly cycle as a time of uncleanliness. Both physically and ceremonially, the normally, they would be unclean until an offering was made. Everything they touched would become unclean. Clothes, objects, cats, other people. Each would require cleaning before anyone else could use or approach them. Every woman would go through this each month, after which they would resume their normal lives and be considered clean once again. That was for normal women. This woman wasn't normal. For 12 years, she had bled. She cleaned out every bit of money she had trying to fix the problem. The doctors couldn't help her. In fact, it says he had got worse. I can only imagine how awful her situation must have been. As I mentioned earlier, Judaism is one big family. She was on the outside of that family, a position of extreme loneliness and self-reliance. She was penniless, unclean, unable to meet with people, unable to go to the synagogue to learn and worship, unable to gather water or go to the shops for food, unable to live. Then she hears the rumour mill. There's a guy that just seems to be able to heal. Really sick people are being brought back to full health. Sickness banished. Lives being restored. But she knows she, she, knows she won't get a look in. No one will have her around. She might catch a glimpse, but there's no way she'll be able to get close. People know about her problem. They snigger as they pass on the other side of the street, whispering in case she overhears the comments they make, avoiding her in case they catch whatever she's got. Being ostracised for so long, her confidence is shot. Then, there Jesus is, right there in the middle of the crowd. She has a burst of confidence, or maybe a burst of desperation is probably a better description. Jesus is up ahead. He's walking and talking. He won't even notice her, which is ideal, really. She can nip in, get what she needs, and be gone without, with him, without him being any the wiser. And before she knows it, she's pushing past people, barging them out the way. It's, a, it's like a game of stuck in the mud. Except for being stuck, everyone she touches or brushing up against is now also unclean. But she's beyond caring. She's well into 12 years of being lonely, despised and rejected, a shadow of the woman she used to be. If she can just brush the hem of his cloak, it might just break this miserable life. Nothing to lose and everything to gain. She grabs for the hem and it's done. In an instant, it's done. The bleeding, she's pretty certain it's stopped. She could feel in her body that she's been completely healed. She could feel in her body that she's been made completely clean and whole again. This changes everything. Being healed, she doesn't have to wash everything all the time. Being clean, she no longer has to be the despised woman and she can start to re-enter the community again. Being whole, she'd lost a part of her when she lost everything else. Something she didn't think she could ever get back. But here it is, restored to her. To shop, to go to the synagogue, to worship again, to fetch water and just do normal things. Doing the normal things without looking over your shoulder the whole time. 
without trying not to touch anything or anyone, to even consider having friends again, being part of the family again. This glorious moment is shattered when Jesus stops. In that moment, she realizes what she's done. She's touched the man's cloak and she's made him unclean. She might be healed, but now she's going to be the woman that made the teacher unclean. Selfish, that's what she was. Her desperation pushed her past the line of acceptability and has brought shame on her once again. She sees him looking around, trying to see who dared touch his clothes. And his eyes fall on her. She falls to her knees and confesses. But the look on the man's face, it isn't filled with condemnation as she was expecting. He isn't angry at all. Then he speaks. He actually speaks to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Twelve years of suffering, and in an instant, she's changed. He called her daughter. She hasn't been part of a family for so long. She can have a life again. Something she never thought could happen. The language Jesus uses here is important. We miss so much detail and meaning when English is used as the translation. The Greek, as we know, heaps depth into the text. When she says, Here, I will be healed, in verse 28, the original Greek means to be saved, to be made whole. In verse 29, she could feel in her body that she had been healed from her terrible condition. With healed meaning cured, and the condition meaning uh, a suffering or a plague. In 34, your faith has made you well. Again, using the terms for saved and made whole. Go in peace, it says. Quietness and the rest. Not only has she been changed, but so has the crowd. The dirtiest, lowest and unclean dreg of society was confronted by Jesus. And he didn't rebuke her. He didn't pull away or chastise her. He should have been made unclean, but he wasn't. In fact, his cleanliness and purity has cleansed her. His mercy fell on her like a flood. All brokenness and darkness has been totally removed and replaced with healing, wholeness, peace and light. Here's another unusual point. As we've seen in other healings, Jesus often tells the person to go and not tell anyone about it. So many times we see Jesus trying to maintain a low profile on the miracle front. We've seen the problems that Jesus faces as the crowds gather in large numbers, preventing him from progressing in what he was doing. This situation reverses what we've seen before. Jesus has publicly declared her healing. Something hidden and disgraceful has been made open and elevated for all to see. The one time someone tried to sneak a secret healing from him, he confronts them and loudly affirms and confirms what she's feeling in her body. No one can deny this healing now. The secretive intent of the woman ends with her healing becoming a public testimony. Jesus didn't seek her out. She sought him. Jesus didn't touch her. She reached out to him. The person the community had neglected and forgotten, Jesus loved and restored. What we see is Jesus brought life. Jesus brought life to her faith. Jesus brought life to a woman who had lost everything. So what about our faith?
I think for me, the hardest thing to grasp is why and when Jesus heals. Like a formula or a recipe or a set of instructions. Unless it's Ikea, then it's a budget and Scarborough affair, I'm afraid. It gives me the confidence, a fallback, if I can't make it on my own. When I met Jen, I could cook a bit. Nothing too exotic, but it was enough to get by, and I didn't poison myself too often. I would take the recipe, and every gram of every ingredient would be accounted for. Jen doesn't use recipes. Jen looks at the cupboard of ingredients and spices as Jackson Pollock looked at his paint. Somehow her food always tastes better than mine, and the contents even barely registers with what the recipe initially demanded. It makes me uncomfortable. It makes my brain hurt. I can't comprehend it, and I don't like it. We know that we can't follow a formula to create consistent healings. Why? Because Jesus doesn't heal by the way of a set of instructions or a gathering of the right ingredients. It's all down to faith. And that also makes my brain hurt. I can't comprehend it, and I don't like it when I'm the one needing healing, or a friend or a family member. It makes me uncomfortable because the healing isn't reliant on me. I like being self-sufficient, and I like consistency. I don't like relying on other people, and I, know, and I like knowing how to make something work. But this is what Jesus has called us to do, to be filled with faith and to trust in him. How does our faith get built up? Faith grows when we see what God can do, when we read about miracles and God breaking through in the scriptures, when we experience it for ourselves or hear how other people's lives have been changed forever. Hebrews 11.1 1 sums it up perfectly. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of the things we cannot see. How much more do I need to say? It's by faith, those things that we hope for and the evidence of the things we cannot see Both Jairus and the woman had heard of Jesus. Two people at the very opposite opposite extremes of society, both affected by Jesus' healing power. They'd heard the whispers and gossip about about the incredible things that had been going on. It was a glint of hope, the shine of a diamond in the coalface. When life gave them lemons, they sought Jesus. They found Jesus, and they were changed by Jesus. By seeking Jesus, they found the only person that could help them in their moment of need. For the woman, it had been a lifetime of hurt and pain. For for Jairus, it came out of nowhere and brought sudden fear and loss. By seeking Jesus, they both found peace and restoration. By seeking Jesus, they both found love and the answer to their plight. By seeking Jesus, they both found the life-giving power he gives so abundantly. And so can we. In neither case was the answer what they expected. The woman hoped to be healed, but I doubt she knew it was actually going to happen. Jairus thought it was too late. I doubt he thought he'd ever be able to be with his daughter ever again. But this isn't the way that Jesus works. He doesn't conform to our thoughts or our expectations. And that can hurt too. We must trust that Jesus knows better than we do. Our faith must be for Jesus to outwork his power in his way. Jesus is beyond our understanding. He's outside of our limits and our control. 
Sometimes difficult events don't find completion before the next trouble arises. Life doesn't often present itself in a nice formatted style laid out in a neat order. It's jumbled and messy and regularly needs straightening out and mending. Until we bring our lives before Jesus. Because Jesus brings life to us. Jesus brings life to our faith. Jesus brought life when he died on the cross and defeated death. Because Jesus brings life to us in different ways and will continue to do so until he calls us home or returns at the final trumpet sound. What should we take away from this? It would be easy for me to say, have faith, and end it all there and walk away. But what we find isn't so simple. There isn't a recipe that produces the result that we desire. There isn't a formula that gives the answers we need. There isn't a set of instructions to follow. Except there is. It's Jesus. Life isn't always easy. I can speak from the stories from my own life. I've found myself in the hardest times, be it work, money, a death, an illness in the family, or friends going through the toughest times, often coming two, three, four strong, finding yourselves completely surrounded by problems and troubles. It's hard. I know it's hard. And I'm right there with you. There is an answer, and it's Jesus. Because Jesus is better. Jesus is so much better. Because only Jesus can bring life. When I find peace in the storm, when I unexpectedly find joy in a heartache, that's my story. When we find peace in the storm, we find joy in the midst of troubles. That's our story. A story we need to share and thank God for. That regardless of the hurt and pain and suffering, Jesus is still there. Jesus still has our back and brings about a magnificent testimony that we get to share with other people. Because we had a dead-end situation, and Jesus breathed life into it. Jesus is the source of the healing. There is no recipe to achieve healing. What we need is faith. Faith is built by hearing God's word, by seeing people's lives turned around. Faith is stirred when we remember the good that God has done. What happens when others around you seem to be receiving all the blessings, yet you're left with seemingly nothing? Let me encourage you, don't be like Jairus. Don't think it's all over, because Jesus is in the habit of exceeding our expectations. A couple of verses I find encouraging in those difficult times. Proverbs 16.9, we make the plans, but the Lord determines our steps. We might well have a clear vision of the way ahead, but it's the Lord that chooses our route. And Ephesians 3.20 also gives us a great insight here. Now all glory to God who is able, through his mighty power working within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Infinitely more. More than my mind can consider. We should remember the woman, that she saw an opportunity and seized it quickly. If I can just touch the hem of his cloak, I will be healed. It was her faith that meant she received the healing. Can I invite the band up, please? Jesus is here this morning. Some may already feel the Holy Spirit moving and prompting. And as a response, 
I have three things for you to consider. Firstly, there may be some here who feel that, O ye of little faith, describes you well. I want to encourage you to step out and try again. I know it's tough. Jen and I have both been there. As a church, we'd love to pray with you. Maybe you're hurting, and that's okay. Jesus is in the business of replacing brokenness with wholeness, darkness with light. We'd love to offer you support going forwards. If that's you, then don't hesitate. Seize the opportunity and come to the front. Secondly, there are those who desire to see faith planted in others. I felt God says he wants you to step out and be a pillar. Now that may take on different forms. It might mean you should offer to pray with someone who comes in a moment to respond. Or it might just mean you need to talk it over with an elder. The church needs people that can demonstrate faith. Faith grows when role models show us how to do it. Maybe that's you. And finally, there are those of you out there with a story to tell. Can I encourage you to come and tell it? Share with us what good God has done in your life so that we can all be encouraged. The double whammy of a testimony is that not only has God blessed you, but he'll also bless others when they hear it. I'm going to pray and then we're going to go into a time of worship together. Can I ask you all to please to stand? Almighty and eternal Jesus, at times we can waver in our faith. And we thank you for the accounts you show us in your word that hold us firm. We pray that we would be strong in our faith, that we would be courageous to seize the opportunities you place in our paths, and we would be quick to share the goodness you have shown with us. As we worship you now, Lord, would you remind us of your love? Draw us close, that we may sense your presence. Speak to us, that we may be encouraged and grow in our faith. We love you, Lord Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen.